DW Living Planet with Charlie Shield. Hello, this is Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shield. Today, we hear from people in California whose home insurers have left them in the lurch as weather extremes intensify in the state. We're marching steadily towards an uninsurable future. We talk to an expert on disaster risk and adaptation, about solutions, and protecting our homes in the face of climate change. Our climate is changing and our risks are going to go up. The problem that we are facing is our homes have been built. So you have these old homes constructed with inadequate building codes in high-risk areas. And we head to the Austrian Alps to get an update from the climate scientists measuring glacial melt in one of the most beautiful, vulnerable places on Earth. I think there must be 2030. A lot has to happen by 2030. The large, high glaciers in Tyrol, in the Ötztal, you can clearly still prevent something. But it's already five past twelve. That's all coming up on Living Planet. Have you noticed that the cost of your home insurance has been increasing? With the inflation of the past two years, the cost of pretty much everything has been increasing. But if you live in an area particularly vulnerable to extreme weather, it's likely that your insurers are charging more and more these days. Or withdrawing their coverage altogether. That's what's happening in the wildfire-prone US state of California, where it's becoming increasingly difficult to find new building insurance. And that's a major issue because... The climate we're living in, it's not a question if people experiencing will experience a disaster again in the future. It's only the question when. And residents that have insurance recover faster from a disaster because they have the financial resources to recover. That's Melanie Gall, an expert in risk metrics and climate adaptation planning. And we'll hear more from her on this a bit later in the show. First up, Katharina Wilhelm has more on the Californians losing insurance, told by Anna-Sophie Brandlin. California and the rest of the United States could soon be non-insurable. That's according to Dave Jones, a law professor at the University of Berkeley and California's former insurance commissioner, who recently told NPR Radio this. In California and elsewhere through the United States, we're marching steadily towards an uninsurable future. California is in the midst of an insurance crisis. State Farm and Allstate, two of the largest insurers nationwide, no longer want to issue new building insurance policies to homeowners. In some cases, they are even cancelling existing coverage. That's what happened to Beth Pratt. She lives near Yosemite National Park, which experienced severe wildfires last year. Pratt invested in fire protection measures, such as a fire-resistant roof. But her insurance policy was still terminated. I just got a letter, not even a, hey, we want these things done. It was, we're not renewing. The problem for homeowners is that without insurance coverage, they also risk losing their loans, she says. California has always had wildfires. The fire season typically starts in early autumn, but something has changed in recent years. Scientists say that human-induced climate change has made the western United States warmer and drier over the last three decades, and more susceptible to fires. Many wildfires in recent years have been more destructive, and thus more costly for insurance companies. According to the Munich Reinsurance Company, wildfires have caused insurance losses of over $30 billion in California since 2017. 
Another factor making it more expensive for insurers is rising construction costs. And simply increasing insurance premiums is not that easy in California, explains Leslie Chisholm, an insurance expert at the Wall Street Journal, who was recently interviewed by CBS. The state doesn't allow the use of forward-looking computer models when companies come in there and try to argue for rate increases. They require they they lean on historical experience. And the other big reason is that consumers have an outsized role in the regulatory process in California. More than 1.2 million homes in California are threatened by extreme wildfires, according to the Insurance Information Institute. California's legislator is trying to protect consumers from price gouging. However, they now have few options left. And it's not just the state of California that's affected. Insurance companies are also pulling out of states like Colorado, Louisiana and Florida. These states have also seen a rise in natural disasters, exacerbated by climate change, such as hurricanes and wildfires. A similar scenario is likely to unfold after the devastating wildfires on the Hawaiian island of Maui. Even though many major insurers are withdrawing, citizens still have one last option – insurance provided by the states. In California, this is called the Fair Plan Insurance. But it is very expensive, says Beth Pratt, who had to switch to such a state plan. It's double what I was paying. There is another downside to these policies. They are focused only on fire protection. But for more and more Californians, they could be the last resort before becoming completely uninsurable. That report out of California from Catalina Wilhelm was told by Anna-Sophie Brantlin. And so, as we heard in that report there, here we're faced with a dilemma. The risk of extreme weather, like floods, fires and storms, and the destruction that this causes to people's homes is only rising around the world as the emissions from burning fossil fuels continue to boil the planet. But major private insurers are pulling the plug on home insurance because the risks are too high and it costs too much, leaving people unprotected. So what are the solutions, if any? My name is Melanie Gall. I'm an assistant professor at Arizona State University and I co-direct the Center for Emergency Management and Homeland Security. I called up disaster risk management expert Melanie Gall to help answer some of these questions. And I started off by asking her what the justification is for private insurers leaving people behind in California as climate change hits hard. Here's what she had to say. The main reason insurance companies are pulling out is because getting insurance for themselves as a company, which is called reinsurance, has gotten extremely costly. So that, in combination with the cost for rebuilding, which has gone up significantly, especially in states like California, and then also the wildfire risk that has inc- or is increasing as we are living you know, in a new climate. So those three factors is what the insurance companies have cited. So it's really a business decision for them to say, is it worthwhile for us to take on the cost of reinsurance to insure these homeowners in states like California Or is it better for us business-wise to simply pull out of the market or not necessarily pull out entirely, but maybe just don't um, write new insurance policies? The thing to keep in mind is that these phases where an insurance company pauses writing insurance policies is not permanent most of the time. So companies like Allstate or State Farm, they will very, very likely going to come back to the market. Because what they are also, you know, signaling to the state is 
Under current conditions, it's too costly for us. But of course, the state also does not want their residents to remain uninsured. So this can also signal to the state, ah, maybe we need to have some maybe public-private partnership. Maybe there needs to be some um, sort of incentives from the state for us to come back and write insurance policies a certain way. So most of the time, this is not permanent. This is just, let's say, a, a temporary pause and a mechanism for everybody to reset. Mm-hmm. And we also heard there in that report out of California that people are increasingly turning to state insurance as a last resort when they can no longer access private insurance. And this state insurance tends to be a lot more expensive. But you mentioned there one possible alternative model, a public-private partnership. What could that look like exactly? And how might it solve some of the issues that we're seeing here in California? So an example that gets often cited as maybe a good practice is the way insurance works in the state of Louisiana, which obviously also has their own significant risks. You know, there's um, a massive hurricane risk. There's also flood risk, but flood risk in general, you know, is covered in the United States through the federal government. But especially in Louisiana, a wind insurance is something that is on people's mind. And in Louisiana, the state legislature really works with the private insurance sector to think about, you know, where does the state step in to incentivize insurers to come back? So, for example, will the state, when there's a really catastrophic event, only hold insurers liable up to a certain level and then, you know, provide support? Or will they give them financial incentives or securities to come in in the state when they write policies. So the state of Louisiana is usually the one where it is said that this is a is a good example that maybe could be instructive to other states. And do you think that something like this public-private partnership could be our best option globally going forward, considering that climate risks are only increasing? So when you look globally, there is numerous examples where there are partnerships between the private sector and government. For instance, in Japan, uh, that's a good example of where really there's a cap and the state then steps in when it exceeds that cap. Or when you look at, for instance, the Netherlands, there is no flood insurance need for residents because flood risk is covered entirely um, by the government. And so in the long run, you would, you, I mean, obviously I can't forecast the future, but I would venture to guess that this kind of partnership has to emerge and maybe only, you know, will emerge for a select few hazards. So maybe not all the natural hazards, but maybe some of the ones that are really extremely costly to the in- insurance market, because our climate is changing and, our risks are going to go up. The problem that we are facing in terms of the residential market is our homes have been built. So we have a building stock that has been established for decades now that is simply neither ready in terms of building codes to face future risk, nor most of the time in places that are low risk. So you have these old homes constructed with inadequate building codes in high risk areas. So, of course, 
you can see that the insurance market has to charge these homeowners and renters a price that represents the risk that they are facing because otherwise you know, they would make a poor business decision their entire business is to write insurance policies and then you know as a company survive at the end of the year mm. interestingly my parents recently experienced this because they live in a flood risk zone and the flooding has been becoming more and more intense over the years and this year they received a bill from their home insurer that said it would cost them 53,000 Australian dollars to cover their home for the year, which is clearly unaffordable for the average family. And luckily enough, they were able to find another insurer with a lower premium. But if these are the kind of sums of money that people are going to be expected to pay or ask to pay for extreme weather insurance, I could imagine that many people would be asking themselves, is it worth it? Does that make sense? As well as whose responsibility is it to cover this damage, actually, considering all of the contributing factors to the climate change that exacerbates this damage? Now, that is a good question <laughs> and, and nearly a philosophical question because, you know, research shows that Residents that have insurance recover faster from a disaster because they have the financial resources to recover. So if your residents don't have insurance and people face really catastrophic losses, they lose their homes, you know, you have massive infrastructure damage, then who's going to pay for that? And you see very often, for instance, here in the United States, if, if there's a catastrophic event, Obviously, the government always has to provide resources, particularly resources for the public sector to rebuild public infrastructure, roads, bridges, you know, water treatment plants, etc. But generally, the damage that people experience to their homes, people have to, you know, cover that on their own. And if you can't afford insurance, then you might actually forego insurance. And that is the risk. And sort of the consequence that we see when insurance prices go up, then a lot of people drop their insurance. And that really is a gamble because the climate we're living in, it's not a question if people experiencing will experience a disaster again in the future. It's only the question when. And very often this connection is not made by people that the second you move in a location, you are the one holding that risk of being exposed to a wildfire or an earthquake. I mean, I'm not an insurance, you know, I, I'm not an insurance advocate. I'm not an insurance researcher. What I research is how vulnerable people are to natural hazards, you know, how quickly they recover from these events. And from my vantage point, you know, insurance is a really, is a very important tool in our toolbox to recover. And you could argue that maybe we need more risk education. Okay, so let's hear a little bit more about that risk education idea. What could that look like for people and what could governments be doing in that regard? I think one of the first things governments could do is really share that information and also have insurance companies share that information. Because 
On the insurance side, this is really proprietary information, how they calculate their risks and then how they arrive at the premium. All you see is the premium. But what went into that calculation and what their take on risk is, that does not get disclosed. And I think this is really where people have a massive disadvantage. You know, you have information about the quality of schools in your community or the crime rate or whichever sort of community indicator you're interested in, you can find information about this. But try finding information of how risky the place is that you're already living in or that you think about moving to. That information is, I would say it's packaged in a sort of very sciencey, academic kind of way where, okay, maybe the, the flood area is delineated or it shows you how many wildfires there were in the past. But what does that mean for you as a regular person. Usually when you buy a home, you don't get information how prior homeowners had to pay for recovering from a disaster or how much damage they had on their home. This is the kind of information that really needs to get simply disclosed to people in an understandable fashion that they can start making decisions related to risk. Mm-hmm. And beyond this education, what else can governments, individuals and communities do to protect themselves and lower their risk? So I think we're in a all hands on deck kind of situation because just in your question, you see that you mentioned homeowners, sort of individual responsibility, but also governmental responsibility, the responsibility of local communities. Here in the United States, for example, building codes is a decision by local jurisdictions and the permitting is an entirely decision made by local communities. And it needs all of these participants to really make risk smarter decisions. So as a homeowner that you try to build, uh, that you buy to build or purchase a home that's in a less risky area and that your house conforms with the most current building standards. The challenge with that is that obviously we already have older housing stock, you know, few properties that really conform to new building codes. And when I say building codes, you know, I don't mean fire codes. For instance, you know, here in the US, there's homes that have wind resistant construction or that might be elevated, you know, about above flood levels. So it's those kind of building codes that I'm that I'm speaking of. So we might have in the long run residents who have the least financial means ending up in the most risky properties. And in a lot of countries across the globe, you actually see this happen. So the trend is very clear. We have more risks. There's only fewer properties to go around that are constructed with the future in mind. So there needs to be support for homeowners and renters alike, not just the homeowners from maybe local governments or the state through incentivizing, for instance, rebuilding a home and rebuilding it or remodeling it to a higher standard. And so these incentives could, you know, tax incentives of whatever kind you can think of, or also this idea of maybe making insurance more affordable for homeowners. But the bottom line of all this is there's a real substantial price tag to us getting ready for the climate that we are facing. Absolutely. Melanie Gall, thank you so much for your time and for joining us on Living Planet today. It's been really interesting speaking with you. 
Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was Melanie Gall from the University of Arizona talking to me about climate insurance, risk and climate change adaptation. I'm Charlie Shield. This is Living Planet. We'll be back in a moment. Are you worried about the state of our planet? Me too. I'm Neil, host of the On the Green Fence podcast. And to me, it's clear we need to change. The solutions are out there, but where do we start? Join me for a deep dive into the green transformation and what it means for me, for you, for the planet. On the Green Fence, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, in the second part of the show, we're breaking away from the topic of climate insurance to head to the Austrian Alps to get a reality check on the future of these spectacular alpine landscapes. Traditionally, even in summer, you'd expect to see the shimmering white of glaciers on top of the high mountains here. But as temperatures have been rising in the Alps, Austria's glaciers are shrinking. Fast. So fast, in fact, that scientists have moved forward their predicted demise by 50 years. Earlier this week, a funeral was held in Austria for the disappearance of yet another of the country's glaciers. The Institute for Interdisciplinary Mountain Research of the Austrian Academy of Scientists predicts that by 2050, there'll only be remnants of ice in shady areas at very high altitudes. That research unit has teams that are regularly monitoring the glaciers as part of a 30-year project. Christian Cummins spent the day with a team measuring the volume of a glacier on the iconic Dachstein Mountain. You don't need any sophisticated tools to see that something is very wrong in the Austrian Alps. Every 12 months, on Hallstätter Glacier, the largest glacier of the Dachstein Mountains, a team of scientists mark the lowest point reached by the glacier's tongue, which is the very tip of the long frozen ice sheet. As we hike up the mountain, meteorologist Klaus Reingruber stops me when we reach the rock they marked 10 years ago in 2013. Ahead of us, there is still a vast stretch of dry, bare rocks and rubble to cross before we reach the start of the glacier, at least the length of a football field, and the melt is increasing. Here on the Hallstätter Glacier, around five or six years ago, the average change in length was around 12 metres per year. For the past two years, we've had 30 metres per year, so it has more than doubled. But the scientists still have a job to do, measuring the ice that is still here. When we finally get onto the ice, we find glaciologist Kai Helfricht squatting over a square machine that looks like a large cooker. Attached to it is a long coil of tubing and a sharp pointed end. This is a dampfsonde, and in the is a big kilometer, so a dampfdrucktopf. This is a vapor probe. We filled it with water. The water turns into steam and then comes out through this lance that we have. The ice melts under steam and we use it to drill a hole in the glacier. We make it 12 meters deep and put the wooden poles in there. 
The wooden poles are called ablation stakes. They are very simple technology. Some wooden sticks attach to each other with rubber fixings to make one long stick, which is driven down the hole deep into the ice sheet. Klaus is helping slide it in. These are made of pine wood. I don't know who figured that out, but the jaws don't bend that much, and they're getting tight now. As a result of the melting, the stick grows out again, so to speak, and we can then read directly what has melted. This means, of course, that as well as boring new holes, the scientists have to hike up and down the glacier, finding the stakes that they placed in the ice sheet last time, and then scribbling down the measurements in a notepad. So, under the glare of a mercilessly hot summer sun, Klaus tramps upwards in his crampons. Streams of clear water are running over a darkening expanse of ice. Is this normal? I ask. Probably hundreds of liters of water are flowing away every minute. I am afraid this is normal. The snow is melting. And the ice is melting. The dark blue-gray color of the ice is significant. These days, by late summer, most of the white winter snow has melted from the glacier. In past decades, much of the snow cover would still be here. The melting water washes all sorts of dirt over the surface of the glacier, covering over its white surface. This makes it less efficient at reflecting the sun's heat away. It's a sort of vicious circle of warming, explains Kai. We call it positive feedback, even though it's negative. It's a process that reinforces itself. So, if there's a lot of ice and snow melting, then of course a lot of dark material remains on the surface that was originally enclosed in the ice. This dark surface absorbs more of the sun's rays, and more ice melts again. We climb ever further up the glacier towards the mountain top. Even here, the sound of melting ice and snow drowns out my thoughts. There's so much water underfoot. I'm worried about my socks getting wet as we head towards the last ablation stake that Klaus has to measure today. I'm at the highest point. It's the highest level that we have. What do we have here? We are at 2,400 meters. And you can hear it. You can hear the water running down. Let's see what has melted this year. It's not happening as much up here as down below. I guess half a meter is already gone from here. Heuer. That's half a meter of height that has melted away from the glacier since spring. Scientists predict that at this rate, many lower-lying ice sheets in Austria will be gone by 2050. By the end of the century, only the highest and most shady glaciers in western Austria are expected to have survived. But even if it might seem doomed at this point, the Halsetter Glacier is providing the scientists with vital data that might help other higher ice sheets. We need the data to calibrate models, so we want to make scenarios for the future, and these models have to be calibrated in the past. So we have to use the data to calibrate the model, and then we can use data on. 
climate change scenarios, put it in the model and get the results, what we can expect for the future. There is a climatic time lag in terms of our carbon pollution and the impact that that pollution will have on our glaciers. So even if we drastically cut emissions right now, Austria's glaciers would still continue to melt for decades to come. That's no reason to give up, though, scientists say. Positive action now is still crucial because every fraction of a degree of warming that we can prevent lessens the impact of climate change and could even save some of Austria's glaciers. A lot has to happen by 2030. The large, high glaciers in Tyrol, in the Ötztal, you can clearly still prevent something. But it's already five past twelve. All nations have to make an effort, not just the European Union, but everywhere. That will be a mountain to climb in terms of climate policy. But when you see the majesty of Austria's glaciers, it's crystal clear that every effort is worth it. For DW, I'm Christian Cummins in the Austrian Alps. That report from Christian Cummins brings us to the end of this week's Living Planet. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show and you've got a moment, leave us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also always email us at livingplanet@dw.com. My name is Charlie Shield. Living Planet will be back next week with more environment stories from around the world.